Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When infectious diseases run rampant, our world gets turned upside down. There is, however, a way to return to normal. We just have to put our trust in vaccines. This week, we're going to look at the benefits of vaccines and why they are considered to be the best option to eliminate a pandemic. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and we're going to get a shot of knowledge about the world of vaccination. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. Imagine a life without vaccines. I know, it's hard. And there's a good reason for that. They work. We know that when it comes to measles, diphtheria, or varicella, that's chickenpox, getting a shot can keep our children safe from deadly diseases. For adults, vaccines can also help reduce the chances of problems later in life, such as shingles, influenza, and bacterial pneumonia. And let's not forget about travelers. There are vaccines against yellow fever, hepatitis A, and traveler's diarrhea. But right now, there's only one vaccine anyone seems to be talking about. It's the one that's going to help us get back to normal. The vaccine against COVID-19. Also known as SARS-CoV-2. There is no better person on earth than Peter Hotez to talk about this vaccine and the journey towards it. And that's because he has spent the majority of his career researching and making vaccines to keep us all safe. He's the Dean for the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine and the co-director for the Center for Vaccine Development at Texas Children's Hospital. Let's start at the beginning. What is a vaccine? Well, a vaccine is a type of pharmaceutical called a biologic uh, because it's usually derived either from an infectious organism or it's genetically engineered from an infectious organism. And it's used to induce an immune response to protect an individual from the actual uh, infection. Uh, The first vaccine was the smallpox vaccine developed by Edward Jenner in, in the late 1700s. And uh, waited for another 100 years for the second set of vaccines from Dr. Pasteur in uh, Paris. And now we have vaccines for more than a dozen diseases, arguably two dozen diseases all around the world. And take us through how a vaccine actually works. I think it might be the easiest to just focus on COVID-19 to give it a real visceral example. COVID-19 vaccines work by inducing an immune response against a part of the virus known as the spike protein. If you've ever looked at a cartoon of a coronavirus, and by now pretty much everyone has, it looks like a donut, and you see all these spikes emanating around it, and those spikes are used by the virus to attach to our tissues in our body to cause disease. And all of the coronavirus vaccines you've been hearing about, including ours, work by 
inducing an immune response to the spike protein uh, in order to prevent uh, that spike from attaching to our tissues. What are we looking for when we have an effective vaccine? Well, what you're looking for ultimately is showing that it actually protects you from getting sick and that it's safe. And that's done through a series of clinical trials known as phase one, phase two, phase three. Studies that we conducted with the first SARS coronavirus, SARS-1, over the last decade showed that in order to do that, you generally have to achieve high levels of what are called called virus neutralizing uh, antibodies, the type of virus that binds to the spike protein, prevents the virus from attaching. So we'll do what's called a phase three trial. We'll collect enough evidence, hopefully showing that several vaccines actually work. And in the meantime, we'll look to see if we can confirm whether protection seems to correlate with those high titers of neutralizing antibody. There's something like 100 or more different types of COVID-19 vaccines, and they come in all sorts of different types of forms, Uh, living, dead, cut up into pieces, even genetic material. Why do we need to have such variety when it comes to making a vaccine? Well, not all of those 100 are going to go into clinical trials. In the U.S., maybe a dozen of them will enter clinical development hopefully including ours in China, there'll be four or five in Europe, you know, a similar number. So altogether, maybe 20, 25 different vaccines. And and the reason it's good to have so many shots on goal is because different vaccines stimulate different components of the human immune response. And we don't know for sure which is going to be the best one, but we don't know which technology is the best at stimulating virus neutralizing antibodies. So We believe that this is best done through a recombinant protein, a genetically engineered recombinant protein, and we're making one similar to the hepatitis B vaccine that's made all over the world. Others are doing this through killed virus, growing up the virus and inactivating it through what's called beta-propionolactone. Others are doing this through live attenuated viruses. Uh, Others are doing it through DNA vaccines, RNA vaccines. And over the next year and a half, we'll begin to understand which of these are the best at stimulating both virus neutralizing antibodies and stimulating protective immunity. And stimulating an immunity is only one aspect. It's also supposed to hang around. You're supposed to have that maintained protection over a very long period of time. But we do hear about what's called waning immunity, where you don't have the ability to fight off the virus after a certain period of time. Can you talk a little bit about waning immunity and then how that applies to vaccines, not just COVID-19, but other ones as well? Many of our vaccines that we give our kids or even adults uh, induce an immune response, but the amount of antibody that'll protect you will diminish over time. So it often won't last forever. So we have to give booster shots. And most parents know about the importance of booster shots for for different vaccines. And there's a good possibility we'll need to do the same thing with COVID-19. The problem is, you know, we're trying to accelerate these vaccines and get them out as soon as possible to the people who need them. So whether or not we'll need a booster is something that we'll find out after we license the vaccines and follow patients over time. So You know, this is going to be a long, carefully orchestrated series of events. Uh, I think, you know, we have this idea, this sort of magical thinking about vaccines, and it's part due to mismessaging from the U.S. government and other governments that 
it's going to be like 1956 all over again, where we, uh, when we had the Salk vaccine trials and we brought all the journalists to the University of Michigan Auditorium, pulled back the black curtain, showed the vaccine works, and everybody went dancing out in the streets. And it's not going to be that way. We're going to have probably the first vaccines that roll out may not be the best vaccines. They may be partially protective. We'll improve upon them over time. Uh, so that the the best vaccines may may come later, and we may need booster shots. Uh, and and uh, so this is going to be an iterative process. And certain vaccines may work better for certain populations. So it's going to be really important for people to have a certain amount of situational awareness and be aware of which vaccines might be best for you and your family, and recognize you know we were kind of pitching this as a race, uh, a vaccine race, and. That's an unfortunate terminology because be careful what you wish for if you're a vaccine developer because the race the history says that usually the first vaccines are not the best. They are get replaced over time. That was true of polio vaccine. It was true of HPV vaccine, Haemophilus influenza type B vaccine. The first vaccines often have a, a built-in obsolescence. So be careful on that. One of the questions that I'm always faced with is a flu vaccine only takes nine months. Why is it that this one is taking a minimum of 18 to 24 months, and it could be even longer before we have a truly effective one? Well, that nine-month period builds on decades of research making different flu vaccines, so the system's already set up to plug it in. Actually, for a new vaccine like COVID-19, developing it in 18 months would be a world-land speed record. So even though I, I... try to debunk the idea we're going to have a vaccine by the end of the year or by the fall, as some people claim, and that'll be at least the middle of next year, that would still be a world-land speed record. Some of the vaccines that we've developed in our lab for neglected parasitic infections have taken decades to develop. So our hookworm vaccine that's now in uh, clinical uh, trials in Brazil and Africa, I first started working on it as an MD-PhD student in the 1980s. Our Our schistosomiasis vaccine, we started in the early 2000s. Our Chagas vaccine, you know, almost a decade. Now, some of that was because we had limited resources and couldn't proceed as quickly as we'd like to, but it gives you a sense of the idea. The vaccines are not quick business, so this is unprecedented. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You might think that working in the vaccine field could be a dream job for an infectious disease researcher, especially when it comes to a pandemic like COVID-19. You are thrust into an action film with the clock ticking and people watching your every move knowing you are going to save the day. 
Well, in reality, it's a very difficult job that requires lots and lots of patience. As you've heard, it's a long process that can take years, if not decades, just to get permission to run a clinical trial. And it's also a step-by-step process whereby vaccines may improve over time. But the most difficult part happens to be the fact that the rewards are usually slim and successes tend to go unnoticed. And that's because the majority of infectious diseases that truly need vaccines are neglected. Pathogens with such names as schistosoma, echinococcus, and leishmania affect millions of people with debilitating and at times life-threatening illness. But they seldom get the attention they deserve. The problem, of course, is that while there is no discrimination when it comes to infection, there isn't a level playing field when it comes to vaccines. Peter Hotez has seen the social importance of vaccines and how this pandemic may help change the way they are seen, developed, and used to keep everyone safe, regardless of the infection. Tell us about the process when you first started, and has it changed any over the years? Yeah, I, I have had a lifelong passion for vaccines, particularly vaccines for parasitic infections and diseases of poverty. I started out developing vaccines for human hookworm infection, and now uh, that's, that work actually began as an MD-PhD student at Rockefeller University in the 1980s, and now they're in phase two clinical trials uh, in Africa and Brazil. That gives you a sense of the timeline. I think the difference between then and now is the technology has advanced quite a bit. Um, Back then, we were making recombinant protein vaccines, and now recombinant proteins are considered sort of old-fashioned in some way. So the vaccine technology that we're using for COVID-19 is not the same one used to make the recombinant hepatitis B vaccine uh, all over the world. So recombinant hepatitis B vaccine uh, made in genetically engineered in yeast is produced in Brazil and India and, and several other countries. And we've been taking that approach because we don't want necessarily the, the newest cutting edge technology if we're going to provide widespread access to low and middle income countries. Uh, We want to be able to transfer the technology so these vaccines can be produced locally in India and Brazil uh, and elsewhere. And because they've had a lot of experience making hepatitis B vaccine, this is a perfect one. The regulators also like it because they like seeing vaccine technologies that they've seen before because they know the safety profile, uh, they know how to minimize risk and they know how to maximize the possibility that the vaccine works. So we've got uh, two COVID-19 vaccines, and we think these are particularly attractive because they could, they're low cost. They probably could be made for maybe just a couple of dollars a dose, like the recombinant hepatitis uh, B vaccine, and widely uh, accessible. And, and to make this happen, we've created this great partnership with an organization known as PATH, P-A-T-H, used to stand for the Program for Appropriate Technology and Health. They're a nonprofit. And they've led the development of the malaria vaccine for Africa, the meningococcal A vaccine for Africa. And now they're partnering with us to help us with this widespread global access plan. And so, you know, you're hearing a lot about uh, nationalism in vaccines, you know, the American vaccine, the Chinese vaccine, the European vaccine. There's even a new term that's been coined called vaccinationalism. 
uh, which I find pretty abhorrent, right? Because, you know, vaccines don't care what uh, country you're from or your ethnicity. It's that, you know, I've been pursuing the opposite direction, trying to shape a global plan of what I call vaccine diplomacy. In fact, the the next book, uh, I like to write books so that my the next book coming out either at the end of the year or the beginning of next year, which Johns Hopkins University Press is called Preventing the Next Pandemic, Vaccine Diplomacy in an Age of Anti-Science. And it talks about my time as U.S. science envoy in the Obama administration and how he, how the, how the state, where I worked with State Department and the White House to build a vaccine development cooperation plan with uh, Muslim majority nations. And we're doing that now with Malaysia and Saudi Arabia and having discussions with Tunisia and Morocco. And I think this is the path forward, uh, how we do international cooperation, which would also offer a lot uh, in terms of repairing uh, some of the breaks that we've had in international diplomacy. We've heard about neglected tropical diseases and how you're one of the most important vaccine developers of these types. But there was one neglected tropical disease that was a huge issue, and we did have a vaccine for it. And then all of a sudden, it went away until we had a huge, massive epidemic. And I'm talking about Ebola. Do you think now with this COVID-19 that maybe we might have gotten to a point where we're not going to all of a sudden think about the um, disease of the month or disease of the year and try and work fervently to get a vaccine and then forget about it or leave it on the shelf when it either disappears or it no longer becomes something that will get you grant money? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the world operates like a little kid's soccer game. If you've ever seen a bunch of three or four-year-olds you know how it works. The ball goes off in one direction and all the kids chase after it. And then the ball moves in someplace else. The kids chase after that again and nobody stays behind the plate defense. And we kind of do, been doing that with uh, vaccines. You know, I keep hoping it gets better. Uh, if you're a vaccine scientist, you're an eternal optimist. And, you know, I thought the world would wake up after SARS in 2003 and it didn't. Then I thought it would wake up again after H1N1 in 2009, it didn't. And then after MERS in 2012, and then Ebola in 2014, and then Zika in 2016. And each time I say, this is the one, this is going to finally turn things around. And it's just a little bit of, it stimulates a little bit of activity and things do get better. We created IHR 2005, International Health Regulations, got the Global Health Security Agenda. So each time things get incrementally better, but the big thing never really quite happens. And maybe now this is going to happen. The WHO is launching their ACT Accelerator for new technologies, and, and, and maybe this time it'll stick. Uh, unfortunately, it had to destroy the global economy in order to make it happen this time around. I would very much like to see vaccines at a place like Davos and show how vaccination can actually help to improve economic prosperity. And I think that this pandemic has kind of shown us why that is. Yeah, it did start to happen somewhat. Uh, so it's not fair to say nothing happened. Um, so after Ebola, a number of global leaders got together at Davos, the World Economic Forum in 2016. And then they met again in 2017, and they did create this interesting organization known as CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, and it is stimulating interest in vaccines and supporting new vaccines, including COVID-19 vaccines. So it's 
it's not that nothing is happening. It's, it's just not happening quite at the scale it needs to. And I've been writing about this for a while, uh, a concept known as blue marble health, which essentially says when you actually take the time to add up where all the poverty-related neglected diseases and emerging diseases are, people always assume it's going to be in the most poorest, most devastated countries of sub-Saharan Africa. But on a numbers basis, it's actually in uh, the G20 countries, the world's wealthiest economies. But it's the poor living among the wealthy, just like what we're seeing in COVID-19, right? It's, you know, how this virus hit New Orleans, hard African-American populations living in poverty, uh, lower income neighborhoods in Queens and New York. It's That's true of most diseases. It's the poor living among the wealthy who account for most of the world's poverty-related diseases. So it's not a resource issue even it's a it's a policy failure and if we could get the g20 countries together that would go a long way to helping us so i wrote that back in 2016 and now johns hopkins press through their project muse that they call it has just released uh, uh, an instant book version of, uh, i think it's free an instant book version related to covid19 uh an adaptation of, of blue marble health and and hopefully that will stimulate some additional thoughts. Maybe we'll get this on the G20 agenda at some point. So you would agree that of all the potential socioeconomic levelers, a vaccine is probably at the front of the line. Yeah, it's the most cost-effective and game-changing technology we have. What else? You know, look what vaccines have done. They've eradicated smallpox. They've close to eliminating polio, dramatic declines in measles, except not because of the anti-vaccine movement, a return in the last couple of years due to vaccine hesitancy. But prior to that, you know, we even talked about eliminating measles, one of the most contagious diseases we know about. What other technology can do that? You know, it's really science in the pursuit of humanitarian goals. We're at the end of the conversation, but not the discussion about vaccines. I'm sure you've heard all the news, the updates, and the promises. And without a doubt, there is hope, but also questions. Now is your chance to ask. Tweet me at JATetro or email me at thegermguy at gmail.com. And also, you can head over to speakpipe.com slash sass, that's S-A-S-S, and post your audio question. We'll take several of them and give you the answers next week. In the meantime, for Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to Peter Hotez. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Dila Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week. Stay safe. And as always, make sure to show them some sass. Sass.